you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 22. Numbers chapter 22. We're going to be focusing on that story that we find there in Numbers chapter 22 in just a moment. Uh, I will just say, on uh, as kind of a side point, um, the the article on the bulletin this morning is actually for the lesson tonight. It's over talking about fellowship, and we're going to be speaking about that in more detail tonight. So I invite you to come back and join us in that study as we talk about what biblical fellowship, what scriptural fellowship actually is, what that looks like. Uh, but this morning what we're going to do is focus on uh, this story in Numbers chapter 22. And incidentally, this is another one of the uh, stories that I think I enjoyed particularly well when I was uh, a young boy. And I think for many um, kids, this was probably the case. It is an interesting story. It's the story of Balaam uh, and the donkey. And of course, the moral of that story is, is treating your pets well. I think that is uh, a lot of times even in kids, kids' classes something that could maybe be taken away but ultimately that is not what the scriptures teach about this story this is not about treating your pets well uh while i think that that is a virtuous thing maybe you know it kind of it, it may describe maybe a nicer person uh to, if you're not someone who just abuses your pet that is not at all what this story is teaching that is not at all what god is trying to teach through this speaking donkey well and i want to go through that uh look at that maybe what exactly that point is uh, as we go throughout the study this morning, as we focus on this chapter specifically, Numbers chapter 22, you may just put a uh, marker there because we'll just continue to come back to this. We're mainly going to just um, stick with, with this passage. We're not going to be going uh, too, too much around, uh, jumping around. It's just going to be three main points we look at as we look at Balaam himself. I will just say, though, uh, I... I it has been very good to just be here so far this morning to worship with you. The first song we sang, Near My God to Thee, that's one of my favorite hymns. I think it has beautiful language. It kind of harkens back to a story of Jacob as he is uh, fleeing from Esau. And, and you see just beautiful imagery there in the language, just speaking about God being that rest. And um, just the kind of faith that we're supposed to have. Um, incidentally, when you look at Balaam, what you find is a faith that you don't necessarily want to emulate. I do think Balaam had faith uh, in God to a degree, but it was not necessarily saving faith. It was a very imperfect faith, and ultimately it, it was a faith that didn't really go um, much deeper than the surface. And that's really what I want to focus on is the character of Balaam, because um, this story kind of reaches its, uh, comes to fruition in Numbers chapter 31. There, there's a bit more that you find sprinkled throughout the text. And then you find several New Testament passages, uh, the three New Testament passages that speak about Balaam specifically. And it makes a pretty uh, severe case, serious case against uh, really the kind of man Balaam was and saying, you don't want to look like him. You don't want to uh, have people like him in your midst. You see that in Revelation 2, 2 Peter chapter 2, and you also see it in Jude in verse 11. I think I forgot to turn this on here. Hopefully that's on. Oh, it's definitely on. <laughs> uh, and, and so there's uh, several different passages in the New Testament, and every time it speaks about Balaam, it is in the most negative context, talking about what false teachers look like, talking about the outcome of false teachers, and really <clears throat> the way that they function. Now, I think a lot of times when you look at New Testament uh, 
you know, the New Testament passages where it talks about Old Testament characters or stories, they tend to give us more context as to what we're supposed to find in those stories. A lot of times when you read through this chapter and you read specifically about Balaam, uh, sometimes because maybe we're just not thinking about the entire story, um, it, it's hard to see those points that God is trying to make through this character. Because as we're going to make clear as we look throughout this text, Balaam is not an Israelite. He's a Gentile. But a Gentile who had very significant dealings with the Lord. And so I just want to look at a couple of things as you look at uh, uh, the kind of man Balaam was, specifically looking at his character and seeing in his character what I think are some consistent traits of false teachers uh, that you still notice today and that you still see today and ultimately that we're supposed to learn from so that we, we can see those things today. So three things that I want to focus on as we go throughout the text, and we'll just read chunks as we go through each point. And the first uh, uh, point uh, we'll see in the first couple of verses here, beginning in verse 1 of Numbers chapter 22. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Then the sons of Israel journeyed and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan opposite Jericho. Now remember, this is while they were still wandering in the wilderness. Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous, and Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. Moab and, uh, said to the elders of Midian, now this horde will lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of Moab at that time. So he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, a people came out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the surface of the land, and they are living opposite me. Now, therefore, please come, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand. <clears throat> and they came to Balaam and repeated Balak's words to him. He said to them, Spend the night here, and I will bring word back to you, as the Lord may speak to me. And the leaders of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent word to me. Behold, there is a people who came out of Egypt, and they cover the surface of the land. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I may be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, Do not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to Balak's leaders, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. The leaders of Moab arose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. And we'll stop there for just a moment. The first thing that I think we find in, in Balaam's character, um, uh, particularly ju just in this story. Again, we're going to look a little bit more at the rest of the story just kind of sprinkled in throughout this chapter. But just within the, the first few verses here, I think you automatically find out a few things about Balaam. And, and ultimately, in, in, uh, the point I want to make is that he did not appropriately or truly revere God. Um, but he certainly liked to act the part. And, and uh, again, we're going to make these points all the way as we go through the, the chapter here. But as you look at Balaam, he was a Gentile. He was not an Israelite. He was clearly not in the midst of the Israelites as Balak is sending these men to come and try and you know, hire him so that he will curse the people. Apparently, Balaam had some kind of um, uh, significant 
power here, some kind of significant role in the people that he blessed and that he cursed. And even as you get to chapters 23 and 24, you see God kind of use him in, that, in such a way. Uh, as you go on, Balaam, spoiler alert, ends up going to Balak, uh, but instead of cursing the people, he blesses them every single time because he, pro- he prophesies. And if you prophesy in, in, uh, with thus saith the Lord, you're going to use his words. And Balaam ultimately never says anything other than what God wants him to say. Now, Balaam will go further when you go past those prophecies that he makes, when you go past those oracles, uh, but we're not there yet. But from the outset, he does have some significance, at least in his role of being a diviner, uh, as Balak the king sends this diviner's fee. But I think you see pretty quickly that he does not really revere God, but but acts the part, not just in his responses uh, to the men, especially when he gets the answer back from God. But also you see this, I think, in just the, the way that he is approached by these men and how he responds to them, how he reacts to them. You might notice um, in verse 8, again, in verse 8, it says, Spend the night here, and I will bring word back to you as the Lord may speak to me. He doesn't say immediately, I'm going to address the gods of this land. No, rather... He speaks about the Lord. And not just that, he uses a very specific name. In your Bibles, the word Lord there might be capitalized or have all capital letters. And what that indicates is that special name that God gave his people. The Jehovah God or Yahweh. The, the I Am that he gave to Moses. It is that very special name that is designated for his people. <clears throat> and so here you have a Gentile who's using that name. What this does not sound like is a man who... who Jehovah is just completely foreign to, to him or to his mind. It doesn't sound like uh, this is a strange um, new God that he's never heard of. In fact, what you find, especially as the people wander through the wilderness, is that everybody's heard of him. And it's because of the great conquerings that he has produced um, it, it, through his people. They've conquered uh, the, you know, Sidon and Og, all of these different, uh, Sihon and Og, and all these different, um, the king of Arad, all of these different nations he has conquered. Uh, and again, with nomads. And, you, and we're going to look at Joshua chapter 2, looking at Rahab's, uh, how she speaks of God because of these things, because of these stories that they've heard. She speaks very beautifully about that, about those victories, and uh, very impactfully about the Lord. I think Balaam, says a very similar thing to what Rahab says, but ultimately they come to different conclusions because Balaam, well, even though he knows this about God, these are known enemies of God, and they are clearly not looking out for Israel. They're trying to bring uh, you know, a curse upon them. They're trying to defeat them, God's people. I think from the outset, what we can find is that Balaam clearly did not have the right heart even from the outset. Instead of saying, listen, I, am, I, am, I could never speak against what the, Lord, uh, the Lord's people. I could never speak against or, or uh, try to call something that the Lord has not, that is not a part of the Lord's will. He doesn't start that way. Rather, he starts by inviting them in, by welcoming them in, these known enemies of God. And, and hopefully, in his mind, hopefully uh, God will allow me to do this. And I do think that there's something to be said about the... Um, the uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 15 says that he loved the wages of unrighteousness. I think that from the very moment that this invitation is given, he kind of is looking ahead and saying, well, look at the honor. Look at the glory that Balak wants to give to me. Look at the wealth that I may be provided with. I think particularly the honor. 
uh, is something that would uh, call out to him, as I think it calls out to many false teachers. But what you find from the very outset is that knowing who God is is just the first step. Like, you can have a base knowledge of God. You can have that mental assent that he exists, but that's not enough. You have to go to the right conclusions. You have to make application when, once you know who God is. It can't just stay there. Over in Luke chapter 18, <clears throat> Luke chapter 18, uh, this is a familiar passage, a uh, conversation that Jesus has with the rich young ruler in verse 18, beginning of Luke chapter 18. It says, A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says to him, Why do you call me good? And no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he had heard these things... He became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus says there's, there's still something you lack. He had, he knew the law. He knew the commandments that God had given to his people. That's, that wasn't enough. God had given them a law, but not just to know, but to follow and to truly apply. And he clearly had not, because there's still something he lacks, walking in that um, and truly making God... Uh, the real God of his life and instead of the money and all the things that he had accumulated uh, in uh, all the material things that he had accumulated he wasn't willing to let those things go and so having right knowledge it's it's not that just merely having right knowledge is never enough it's what you do with that knowledge and I think that that's a point that we all understand and, and we don't really have to explain all that much. But I, as I say that, that is not to say that we must have perfect knowledge of everything. I, I think we're always going to continue to grow. Uh, you even see in Acts chapter 16 with the Philippian jailer as Paul is, is imprisoned and they're just singing hymns while they're in prison. You know, a great earthquake comes, all of the cells are open. The, surely the men have fled because who wouldn't? And so the Philippian jailer, he's about to kill himself, but he has a radical mindset uh, transformation because as he's about to kill himself, because he knows the consequences of what's about to happen, Paul cries out saying, don't, don't hurt yourself, we're still here. And you know the story, but as, as, as he goes and he sees that all the men are in there, what does he do? But he asks, what must I do to be saved? He, he, he learns from Paul and he learns the gospel. And it says in that very hour, he and his household were baptized. They were converted. Now, I go through all that just to say, do you think the Philippian jailer had perfect knowledge? Like, do you think that he had the knowledge that, that, maybe, that maybe Tom has at this point? Well, certainly not. You know, there's a difference between someone who's just been baptized, who's just been, who's just been confirmed as a part of this kingdom. God has added him into his kingdom. And there's a difference uh, between that person and someone who's been a part of that kingdom for some time. At least there should be. Because there's a lot of experience and there's a lot of time given specifically in trying to learn more and grow in that knowledge, in the more knowledge that, that we gain as we uh, are studying our Bibles, as we are studying God's Word specifically in the commandments that He wants for us to follow. And so I'm not saying that we need to have, ever need to have perfect knowledge because ultimately there's never going to be a time where we are not growing. Uh, we are, we're always going to be growing. If we're not growing, we're dying. But even little information of God uh, is enough to find salvation. I do think uh, that, that we need to make that distinction. 
But coming back to Balaam, I don't think it was a matter of just imperfect knowledge or just imperfect faith. I think it was a matter of he did not come to the right conclusions with the right knowledge. Um, going back over to jo Joshua chapter 2, as I said, we we're going to come to a moment ago, um, looking at the story of Rahab. Listen to what she says about the same God and about the same people. Um, in, in Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, it says, uh, she said to the men, I know that the Lord, she uses his, his, that special name, just like Balaam. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond, beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And then she continues by just asking them, please just, you know, let me be a, let me join. After all, saying all that, I understand God is superior. I want to be a part of that kingdom. I, I really do think that from the outset you find in both stories a difference between Balaam's attitude and, and Rahab's attitude because there is no, uh, I don't think there is any hesitation in the outright devotion to, to the choice that she's making. Whereas Balaam, as we're going to read even further, he's just trying to look for wiggle room. He's trying to look for a loophole the entire time. God has refused to let me go with you. Have you ever had someone talk to you like that, give you an answer like that? Like, we, we understand what people are communicating. It's not just, oh, I can't go. It's, listen, guys, my wife said no, so I can't go to the game anymore. And we, and we kind of understand what people are communicating when they use that tone, when we use those words, instead of just a very confident and firm, no, nope, can't do it tonight. We kind of throw people under the bus like that. And I try to make sure I never throw my wife under the bus like that. You know, I don't think it's a very manly thing to do. It's not a Christian thing to do, certainly. But, but I think that's even there, when you go look back at Numbers chapter 22, that's what you see Balaam doing. All throughout, he's just trying. He wants so badly to do the opposite of what God has, has said, to do the opposite of what God truly wants. And so with, with accurate knowledge, there comes a higher responsibility of, of righteous, logical discernment. And I don't think Balaam shows it. Rahab did, and she had the same amount of knowledge. And she made the right decision. And, and incidentally, she was saved for that, her and her household. And in fact, she's actually integrated into the, the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah, uh, because of that decision. Balaam, on the other hand, he's remembered, but not for such a, a positive uh, thing. Rather, he is noted as someone that you don't want to follow after. And so... I think ultimately he knew what was going on. And in verse 9 again, it says God comes to Balaam and says, Who are these men with you? And Balaam, he responds, God, God knows who these men are. Do you, do you ever hear God ask a question and think, Wow, I can't believe that God needed this to be clarified by anybody. No, God knows what he's talking about. When God ask, asks a question, it's never for his clarification. It, it's always... For, for the persons that he's asking. It's for their clarification. It's for their benefit. How many times has God asked a question to people? Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. Did, where, where are you? Who told you you were naked? 
These were things that were supposed to get Adam and Eve to, to rethink, what have I just done here? I think about 1 Kings chapter 19 as, 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 he, as Elijah is so discouraged because of having to flee from uh, Israel, having to free, uh, flee from, ba uh, not Bathsheba, Jezebel and, and Ahab. And he is just so just uh, despondent. And God has to ask him a question. He says, what are you doing? And I think a part of that, he's just trying to get him to remind himself, hey, I still have a job to do. In fact, at the very end of that story, after he sees all of these things from God, he picks himself back up and he does what God has commanded him to do. He still has a job for it. I still have a job for it. Elijah gets up and does it. You see this with Job. At the end of the book, when you look at God's response, I can't imagine being Job. That's one of those moments where clearly when someone asks a question, they do not expect a response. You ever had that with your parents? You know, I've, I've had it with my father, certainly, many a time. And, and, there, and, I, and I, there were moments where, you know, I knew exactly what he was wanting, silence. It was a rhetorical question, and I thought I'd be cute because maybe I was in front of one of my siblings or something, and I thought I was going to be cool. And guess what? The outcome of that, I did not look cool. But I looked like a fool, and I looked like a crybaby too. And so when God asks question, I, I, it's always for the person's benefit. Their clarification, not God's. He knows. But it's to get us to rethink, what am I doing here? And I think Balaam would have really done well to think in those terms. Why, does God, why is God asking me this? It should always arouse consideration, careful consideration. And I think that needs to be the same when we approach the scriptures. When we approach any word of God as we are reading through his, his, his revealed word, through his revelation, we need to ask ourselves questions in those same way. What is God trying to get me to understand here? Why is he asking this question? Do I need to truly you know, inspect even more internally? Uh, and that always needs to be the case. But especially as you think about how false teachers uh, act. False, te false t teachers and false prophets, they always like to act so naive. But clearly they're not. And we're going to look at 2 Peter chapter 2 in just a moment uh, because there's a great description of what those kinds of men look like. But you, I think you've seen that. There are men who just like to, you know, they put forward a certain passage or there are just men that like to, you know, poke, 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 poke. And then all of a sudden, you know, you, you, you finally respond and they're like, whoa, whoa, what's this about? You know, and, and you're like, well, you've been poking me for the past several days. Or someone, especially when someone provides a specific passage in a very specific context. And you're just saying, well, that's not appropriate to bring in to, to this point. This happened with COVID a lot. You had people that would come in, and, and uh, this happened to me. And, I, and I, was just, I was trying to keep a balance here. There was someone who was going in far extreme saying, essentially, that, that you're responsible for anything that happens if someone else gets sick and you are around them. And I was like, listen, I understand we need to be safe, but... but you're going a little too far. We're not supposed to live in fear like that. And, and honestly, that's a pretty malicious way of thinking. And someone, I, and I quoted a, a, a verse that was, wasn't even about COVID. It was just not having anxiety. And the verse that I got back was in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit murder. And I was like, well, you really communicated what you meant to say. There was no confusion there. It was clear what they were trying to say. And it was completely inappropriate. Completely inappropriate. It did not. It was not justified. It had nothing to do with what we were talking about. Not to say that COVID wasn't a serious thing. It was. But, but to bring a verse like that in, what are you saying? You're a murderer. If you somehow get somebody sick, 
because, of course, you meant to. No. That's an, it's an appropriate usage of the passage, and so you know, how, you know what people are doing when they do that. It's kind of like what the devil does with Jesus. Oh, but what, what does the psalm say over here? You're, you're not going to strike your foot against a stone. And then Jesus has to come back with, but, but on the other hand, I mean, the scriptures literally teach that you're not supposed to test the Lord your God. And so we have to have that balance. False teachers, they don't like to have that balance. They like to pick and choose, and they like to tear things out of its context. And what that shows is that they are not reverent enough with God's word. They're not reverent enough with God himself. Well, moving beyond that, not only did he not appropriately revere God, but he also just, he, he just, he really didn't obey anything that God had, had prescribed. He didn't obey God in the long run. You continue on in verse 15. After they, he, is, he, is, he has sent the people away. I mean, he's, he's obeyed God. He's done what he's supposed to. But then in verse 15, that Balak sent again leaders, more numerous and more distinguished than the former. They came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I beg you, hinder you from coming to me. For I will indeed honor you richly, and I will do whatever you say to me. Please come then, curse this people for me. Now listen to the first thing Balaam says, because this is beautiful. He replied to the servants of Balak and said, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything, anything, either small or great, contrary to the command of the Lord my God. Wouldn't it be a beautiful thing if the story just stopped there? But right after saying that, verse 19, But, you know, please, you also stay here tonight, and I will find out what else the Lord will speak to me. God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise up and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you shall you do. So Balaam arose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the leaders of Moab. But God was angry because he was going. And we'll stop there for just a moment, pick up uh, in verse 22 again when we get to the, to the last point. But, but just in these few verses here, what I think you find is a very clear indication of how somebody can, can you know, technically do what they're supposed to do. But that's not really obedience. And you see it because, again, all throughout, what you find is Balaam, he's just trying to find the loophole. He's trying to get some wiggle rooms that way. He does not really have to do what God has commanded. He knows exactly what God wants. You send them away, you have nothing to do with them. That was clear. And if it wasn't, maybe we need to go back and listen to some of those questions again that God asks. And listen to what God actually says about what they're trying to do. They're trying to curse my people. And the fact that they come back and even welcomes them into his house once more after knowing the intentions. That's crazy to me. I, I think when I think about that, how he just welcomes them right back in, knowing what they're trying to do, it just makes me think about what John talks about in 2 John verses 10 through 11, when, when he says, you know, don't invite these, these men in. Because if you invite them in, you're participating in their evil deeds. These false teachers. You don't welcome that in because you don't have no fellowship with that. And I think that much could have been clear for Balaam. I think he knew exactly what he was supposed to do. The problem was he didn't want to. Compliance, you can comply with a lot, but that doesn't necessarily equate to sincere obedience. You can comply with a, a commandment that you've been given, but if all you ever try to do is leave wiggle room to do ultimately what you want to do, that's not obedience. Rather, what that's doing is just biding your time until finally you get to jump on the real thing that, that you wanted. Your true goal all along. Balaam's goal is not to please God. His goal is to, you know, try to appease God 
while doing all the things that he really wants to do that really go against what God wants, his will. And that's a problem. Compliance that is never, that is never what God wants from his servants, from his people. He wants true obedience, sincere, honest obedience. And that means that you're not going to be like Balaam, looking for that or trying to make wiggle room or trying to look for those loopholes. That's like what the Pharisees did. Every time they quoted a law, what did they do? They said, you know, I, I think that's so much of what the Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus says, listen, you've heard it said, and, and then he'll talk about something, and I think he's ultimately correcting the corruptions of the Pharisees. We know we can't commit adultery, but you know, there's a lot of other things that you can do besides adultery. And hey, as long you, you could just get a divorce from this person, and then you can marry another person, hey, you're no longer committing adultery. What does Jesus say, though? Look back. Look back at what it says. God takes marriage very seriously. God hates divorce. And guess what? The man who goes and, and marries another woman for any other reason than uh, infidelity, infidelity for sexual immorality, for adultery, guess what? He makes her an adulterer. So even though they found the loopholes, that doesn't mean they were obeying God. What it means is that they were trying to save face and act like, hey, I'm really doing what God says. I am a true servant of God. But ultimately, they didn't care. They were sinning all the while. And so I think this is one way that you spot false teachers is, is, is seeing that kind of immaturity. Christian maturity, true maturity, is not just following, but learning to, to step by step appreciate God's will all, the, all along. You, you hear a commandment of God, and all we think is that is nothing but burdensome. But John says, well, his commandments aren't burdensome. What that means is I don't think that if, if we find something is something somewhat burdensome, I don't think that immediately means that we are just unsavable. What I think it means is there's still a lot of growing to do. Why is it that this is, that this is so uh, angering to you? Why is it that you've become so bitter that you don't get to participate in this specific action that God has condemned? We'll go a little bit further. Why is it that I don't see it in the same way that God does? And you see it, you take step by step to the point where you finally get to that maturity where you look at these commandments that God gives you and not, and not only are you just, just merely following them, but you truly appreciate them. And you're really trying to apply them and not just looking for the loopholes. False teachers, though, men like Balaam, one way that you can spot them, one way that you can notice them is they do not have that kind of maturity. They are nothing, uh, or they, they are only spiritually immature. And they always try to leave that kind of uh, space so that way they can wiggle out of the commandment that God has given them ultimately to do their true desires. In Revelation 2, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14, one of the things that he says to one of the churches that Jesus is, is warning, Revelation 2 and verse 14, it says, but I have a few things against you. He said they've been doing well to a degree. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, as you go throughout the story of Balaam, remember, the, it, comes, it concludes really in Numbers chapter 31. But in Numbers 25, you don't even really see much interaction from Balaam. But what you find is seeds of his uh, wisdom, seeds of his 
ideology. He was not going to speak against the Lord. In fact, all of the oracles that he gives in chapter 23 and 24, they are from the Lord. And he does not go further than what God has spoken. But he still engages with Balak to try and corrupt the people by telling them, as we just read in Revelation 2, just present them with these temptations. I can't curse them, but they can curse themselves. And how do they do that? By pulling away from God. By not themselves obeying God. And so it comes, again, it comes back to obedience. And so because of his teaching in Numbers chapter 25, they do go astray for a time. But ultimately, what you find is that that remnant still remains and that judgment will come for, for that, uh, you know, wonderful idea that Balaam has. And so you, you see that uh, a true obedience is not just compliance, but it's, it's, it's a true desire to do what God wants for us to do and to stay away from the things that God has clearly condemned, that he clearly has indicated he wants us to not have any part of. But finally, before we go on to the last point, at the, at the very beginning of verse 22, I think sometimes people could ask, could ask the question, you know, it says God was angry because he was going, but didn't God tell him to go? Again, I think that we can very clearly understand this right from the outset, especially if you've been married. Have you ever, and I, I don't know why, but this example tends to uh, resonate especially with the men, but whenever I've given it, but have you ever had an, a circumstance where you uh, planned on doing something with maybe a couple, a couple other guys, you know, uh, good friends that you have, whatever the case may be, you're going to a basketball game or something. And you forgot, have no idea how you did, but you forgot that this night is your anniversary with your wife. <laughs> and then what happens? Well, clearly we're just going to say, up, oh, can't go. No, unfortunately, some, some of us have tried to go a little bit further. <laughs> and we go, to the, we go to our wives and we say, listen, honey, love of my life, I know that this night is special for you. And it is, it is supposed to be special for me too. But I was not thinking when I got these tickets, the tickets are already bought, and I really don't want to have to go through the hassle, and they're all counting on me to go with them, and so could we just maybe postpone? I mean, we're going to do it eventually, but can we just postpone? And she, she says, okay, you can go. But she says, all right, you do what you want. That means you, have a clear, you are clear to go. You're good, right? You get to do that. She said, she said it was okay. But clearly, clearly, there is going to be a great cost when you get back home. <laughs> All right, fine. You do what you want. What is that saying? You do what you want. And it better be spending time with me rather than your friends, rather than this silly game. And honestly, you know, that, that is the correct answer when you're thinking about it objectively. Because what's more important? My, my wife. What's more important? my most beloved, and that ought to be God. For Balaam, I don't think that's what it was. He shows because, what does he do? I know what you've already said. I know you've already made it so clear what you don't want from me. But, can we do this? Can I just come to you one more time? God says, okay, fine. You do what you want. And he does. And it's because of that, he fails this test. And, and through this, Balaam shows who he cares about more or what he cares about more. And it's not God who he cares about. 
Rather, it's the riches, it's the honor and the glory that he could get. So finally, we read, uh, uh, finishing in verse 22, God was angry because he was going, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field, but Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back into the way. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path of the vineyards, with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed herself to the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. The angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right hand or, or the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his stick. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam completely unfazed, says to the donkey, because you have made a mockery of me, if there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. <laughs> the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And he said, no. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand and he bowed all the way to the ground. The angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out as an adversary because your way was contrary to me. But the donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, I would surely have killed you just now and let her live. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you were standing in the way against me. Now then, if it is displeasing to you, I will turn back. But the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but you shall speak only the word which I tell you. So Balaam went along with the leaders of Balak. And that's where we'll stop this morning. First of all, <laughs> in just the answer that he gives to the people, and he says, I, I did not know. I did not realize that, I was, that you were standing in the way against me. Again, wives, how would you respond to your husband if he said, you said I could go. How was I supposed to know that you were upset? How were I supposed to know that you were insulted? You, you knew. Don't be intentionally dense. That's what we would say because that's what they're being. That's what, how Balaam's being. He's being intentionally dense. How was I supposed to know? Well, short of God literally said what he wanted you to do. I guess there was no other way. But God had been very clear and he had told him exactly what to do and what not to do. And Balaam decided that he was going to go anyway and he does this, as we already indicated, because he, he, he clearly loved something else more. He loved the wages of unrighteousness more than he loved God. Now, as we look at Balaam as an as a example of, of a false teacher, of these men that we are supposed to look out for, I think in the same way, you, what you find time and time again in the illustrations given about them, the descriptions of them, ultimately, they love something more than God, whether it's unbridled babbling or vain honor, glory on themselves. Going over to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 in uh, verse 12 beginning. 2 Peter chapter 2 in verse 12. <clears throat> Speaking of these kinds of men, he says, but these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. 
They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression. For a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. I love the, the imagery that Peter goes through here. He says, you see, this animal, this dumb animal, restrained the madness of this man. And I think you even see some mirroring here. You see a contrast given. You see, with Balaam... The dumb animal was the one that did restrain the madness of the man. But then, how does he talk about these men at the very beginning? In verse 12, these like unreasoning animals. <laughs> and so, so he, as he talks about these men who are like unreasoning animals, he uses an example of a man who had an unreasoning animal necessarily, or as it were, a dumb animal who speaks with the voice of a man and brings reason. And I think one of the things he's trying to do is just make the case that, that, that is, it is just as foolish, it is just as, as really dumb to go after that way, to go after their random babblings, because they, speak, they don't speak with the wisdom that even this donkey spoke in Numbers chapter 22, which did restrain the madness of the prophet, which did restrain the madness of, of Balaam. So, so going back to Numbers chapter 22, what does the donkey actually speak? What does he say, and why is it so impactful? Look again in verse 28. First of all, remember, the Lord is the one who opened his mouth, who opened the donkey's mouth, her mouth. And what does he say? But he asks first, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Balaam, righteously indignant, of course, uh, you have disobeyed me. You have made a mocker of me. I would kill you if I, had, if I was able to. Verse 30, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? Do you think that, again, God is trying to teach Balaam, treat your pet well? No. No. What is he trying to say? Notice that everything that the donkey says about herself is true of God. That first question, what has God done to Balaam that Balaam has treated him so? What has God done? He has blessed him greatly. Why is it that that's not enough for Balaam? You go even further in verse 30. Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden on your, all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do? Have I ever done wrong to you? Have I ever led you astray? Clearly not. Then why aren't you following the path I've given you? And Balaam has no good answer. And this, and this here, I think, is the way that that madness is restrained by a dumb animal. But it's a dumb animal that is being used by the Lord, that God speaks through. And Balaam has to learn that it is me that you have gone against. It is me that you have uh, really, who has been struck, who has been hurt. And you, uh, the way you have, um, what you think about this donkey, wh what should I think about you? I think especially when he says, oh, if I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you. <laughs> and he doesn't see the dramatic irony there. We see it because the angel, the adversary is standing right there. And he's ready to strike him down. But oh, when we, don't see the, when we don't see the visual consequences right in front of us, because maybe it's down the road a little bit, I think we respond the same way sometimes. 
Because it's not, because we just can't see it right in front of us. The gun's not pointed to our head. Here's the consequence. Death is the consequence if you go too far. But you know what? Obviously, if it was truly wrong, then God would stop me. He may be. And so, God uh, makes clear that he wanted him to go uh, the, the path that he had already given to him. Now, as he tells Balaam, essentially, no. As he's trying to give Balaam a law or a commandment to follow, Balaam does not want to. I, I think that we need to learn from Balaam in his responses. God does not tell us no to hurt us. And we've talked about this before. He tells us no to expose the danger that we're in or that we are approaching. It's the same exact thing that you see in Genesis 2. All the beautiful blessings that they had in that paradise. And they had the most beautifully, organically grown fruits you could ever imagine. So pure, without anything, in, without any artificial, so pure, unblemished. They had everything that they could have asked for, fellowship, a direct fellowship with God, and yet they wanted the fruit of this tree. But what did God say? He wasn't just trying to take away their fun or make sure that they couldn't be entertained in all the ways that they wanted to. This has consequences. I'm saying no, not to take away your fun, but to show you that this leads to a separation from me. And that should be enough. The consequences, knowing the consequences, that should always be enough. But like Balaam, sometimes it can tend to be still uh, hard to say no. The temptation just looks too sweet. But where does it lead? Remember the outcome. Don't forget it. Because what does Jude say in Jude 11 when he talks about going the way, uh, speaking of the same kinds of men, wolves in sheep's clothing, they have, woe to them. They have gone the way of Cain. They have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. And what is the outcome? They have perished in the rebellion of Korah. And we looked at that last week. Remember that? That judgment? The earth swallowed them up. Now, again, we're not going to be swallowed up in the same way, but the consequence is still very dire. You will go to hell if you do not follow the, the Lord's law, His word, His command. And so we don't want to act like the false teachers who never care about the intent of God's law or His command. We want to see the benefit. We want to see, we want to desire to not just appease Him, but please Him. That's what we need to desire. And so what path are we currently walking on? What path are you currently walking on as we think about the path that Balaam decided to go? It may be that you're a Christian. It may be that this lesson, hearing this lesson this morning, is God trying to indicate to you or reveal to you where you're headed. If you see any similarities between your life and the decisions that Balaam is making, turn back and let the... the, uh, reasonable words that God has spoken through the donkey of this story be the thing that restrains you from going too far. Because ultimately, remember, the end of this path, in Numbers chapter 31, it leads to his destruction. He dies with the very people that were trying to curse God's people. And it is done through the very judgment of God. And so, maybe it is that you have never become a Christian. False teacher or not, I know we've made a lot of applications speaking about false teachers and what they look like, but whether you are or not, what this passage shows us is that those who don't truly revere God, who don't truly obey Him and don't make Him their highest priority, is that they will receive that judgment, the same judgment of Korah, ultimately separation from Him. But God so strongly wants you to come to Him and to have that right relationship with Him. 
And so would you do that this morning? If you are willing to do that, let us help you in any way that we can. If you're subject to the invitation, come and let us know as we stand and as we sing.